TFM. Welcome, everyone, to Warp Five, our dedicated enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me today is Matthew Rushing. Matthew, welcome back aboard the NX01. You know, Chris, it's so great to be back. I just, I love the NX01. I love its retro lines. You know, I love the uh, brushed steel everywhere and having flocks down in sick bay. It just always makes me feel more comfortable knowing that, uh, you know, his Tiberian bat can cure me of anything with its droppings, uh, you know. So, yeah, it's <laughs> right. just, it's, it's, it just feels like home. Well, I have to say also at this point in the series, you probably also feel very comfortable thanks to the NX01's beefy defensive capabilities. That, that, yes. Well, and I was really thankful, you know, I was on the wrong side of the ship at the first and, uh, you oh, know, Captain Archer, he, always he let me. screws yeah. with my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense that it would. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, now the stars are going the right way and uh, all yeah. is good. We're all set. Well, that means we can continue on with our look back at Enterprise during its 20th anniversary year. And for this episode today, we're going to talk about Fight or Flight, which is the first regular story that we get after the premise of the series is established in the pilot, which we talked about last time. And it's where we really begin the exploration of human nature and how we would handle this transition to being a spacefaring civilization that's really going out there with the Warp 5 engine and really exploring the unknown for the first time. And so, Matthew, this story is a little bit of a scary one. It's one I put on my Halloween episodes list because of that ship they go over to because they find this mysterious ship with 15 crew members who have been slaughtered and strung up to the ceiling. They've got tubes attached to them with fluids being collected from their body and it really freaks Hoshi out. Yeah, um you know, it is definitely I, I would say uh, a great way to kind of come off the pilot and and one of the things I do love about this episode is that it does not shy away from the fact that nobody on the NX01 has ever experienced anything like this except for maybe flocks, you know, and Paul uh, you and know, and they pull. even have that conversation, uh, Phlox and Hoshi about, you know, his, some of his experiences. And so, you know, I do, I, I think that this is a fantastic episode in that it is going to truly set the stage for the fact that these are very different people in space than we have ever seen before in Star Trek. And in many ways, they are all just like you and I, in the fact that they've never experienced any of this before. And so I right. I would have to say, re-watching this episode, I really responded to that idea. And I think that the writers actually did a phenomenal job with trying to explore all different responses to never having been in this before. Hoshi deals with it one way. Trip is dealing it with another way. Archer is dealing it with it his way. T'Pol obviously has her her way of dealing with. Like everybody has this different perspective, and I, I think it 
it really helps us kind of see how each of these characters is going to deal with things as we move through the series, That some of where their character arcs might go. So all of this, I think, is just, I love it. I really do. Yeah. And I think visually as well, this episode does a really nice job of setting the tone of how this series would differ starkly from its predecessors because when DS9 came around, you know, Emissary stands really well on its own, but the first few episodes mm-hmm. of season one of DS9, they feel a lot like the next generation in a different setting. Right. Voyager is the same. It feels a lot like the next generation in a yeah. different setting because they're all in that same time period. Mm-hmm. So it's natural that they would feel that way. And here with the prequel, it's just, you know, as you and I record this, we're sitting here with our baseball caps on. You've got on the NX-01, I've got on the NX-02. And it's just elements like that that you see in the series, them wearing hats, uh, wearing more casual clothing, the submarine feeling of the ship versus the big majestic starship of later. Mm-hmm. I felt like they did a really nice job here in what's a much more quiet episode compared with Broken Bow of really laying that foundation. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I really appreciate about the episode and the way that it kind of sets the stage, because this is a very different ship. It's it's a very different speed, honestly, even that we're going here. Um, Warp 5 and the fact that they're not just running into a different planet every week, you know, this just right. shows you, yes, Warp 5 opens up a ton of planets to you, right. but it still takes time to get to that that part of space. And so... Well, that was nicely done here because mm-hmm. they're opening the episode trying to find somewhere to go, find yep. something to look for. Yep. And well, to poll says, you know, it's only one in every 47,000 planets right. has intelligent life. So well, it does show that it is sort of a, a dark and quiet mm-hmm. universe still when you're only traveling, only traveling at work. Exactly. Time. Well, and it, and I think one of the things that I really like about this in setting that stage uh, for what Enterprise is going to be like is the fact that it's you have to find something to do, and everybody kind of reacts differently to kind of the boredom of just being in space. It's it's kind of like when you're in the car for a long time and you begin to yeah, notice right. that no, annoying sound coming from somewhere and you can't figure it out and and just that was great and um yeah. you know watching you know flocks really getting into being able to see humans in a very small uh confined area and and the way that they interact Tucker just getting antsy or you know the fact that you saw the way in which Reed reacted to what happened in mm-hmm. that that first adventure that they had in Broken Bow and doing all he can to get the ship ready for combat because, and I think, you know, as the sh- show will go on, rightly he sees they need to be much more ready to defend themselves than they thought that they might need to be. And then you've got Mayweather who's like, well, we never ran into any of these type <laughs> right? of problems, really. Yeah, and he's like, problems? <laughs> yeah, you weren't going warp five. You're only going warp two. So the <laughs> amount of people you're going to yeah. run into was pretty slim anyway. So, you know, I right. think, again, like listening to Berman and Braga and what their thoughts were in that commentary for Broken Bow, I really think that this episode is playing out exactly what they wanted which is we are Mm -hmm. going to be dealing very honestly 
with these people as this is their first time in space and this is what it would legitimately be like to be going quote unquote this slow in Star Trek. Right. And I think, I mean, I know people didn't love this episode when it first came out, but to me, this is exactly what you should expect after Broken Bow coming into this series. It's, I think it's, it's really, uh, it's smart. It's well-written. It's well-paced. And all of the characters are starting to kind of come alive in different ways. You know, you're seeing different parts of their, their personality. So I love it. Yeah. I love your analogy of being stuck in the car on a long road trip. Because mm-hmm. the thing is, when you're out there in space and you're only going warp five, you can't look out the window and check out the license plates from the starships yeah. <laughs> from other planets. Exactly. The license plate game is really boring in space. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You can't play Beetlebug Punch. You know, you just can't. There's not a lot you can do there when you're out there in space. But no, I do love that they captured that feeling of, of sort of boredom because, again, that contrast between this series and the series that came before and humanity's place in the universe here in the 22nd century versus the 23rd or 24th century, they did exactly what they set out to do. But again, it didn't connect with a lot of fans who wanted to have that continuation of the 24th century and Voyager. But I think more and more fans today going back watching the series do appreciate what we're seeing here in Fight or Flight a lot more than they did at the time. Because mm-hmm. you take something like, you know, Hoshi's character, there's a lot of payoff here watching this after you see her growth through the series and what she's like at the end. And then you can go back and see how scared she was on this first sort of regular mission. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that makes this really interesting to watch now is and I was thinking about this even as a reflection of the world that we're in today and kind of how risk averse that everybody seems to be. Yeah. You know, everybody seems to be so scared of everything these days. And that's kind of the characterization that we have with Hoshi. You know, she is somebody who would much rather be in her safe space on planet Earth in a university teaching. And yet the thing that excites her the idea of being the person that is the first one to interact with these languages and to understand them and to begin to catalog them and to be able to speak them means to do that she has to be on the ship going warp five screaming through space towards danger at any moment and are you willing to take that risk are you willing to 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 Take yourself out of the safe space and into the danger because that's where those things happen. And it really just goes to show that, you know, all life is risk, right? And and so that I, I really loved that message and, and Hoshi kind of coming to that realization. Mm-hmm. And it's so instructive, I think, for all of us that, yeah, no matter what we do, life is going to be a, a, about risk. And the excitement of being able to experience the unknown to be able to do something new and or exciting that's all going to come with 
taking that step out your front door. You know, it's like what Bilbo talks about, you know, taking that step out your front door. You have no idea what's going to happen, Frodo, but that's the excitement. And um, so, yeah, take a risk because as Kirk will say later on, that's our business. And we have to be in the business of not just, you know, sitting on our butts and watching Netflix Otherwise, nothing will ever change or get done, or we want, we're not going to have any innovation. Nobody innovates by just lying on their couch. Well, that's a good point. You know, you talked about how in the world today, so many people, and not even just individuals, but if you think about organizations, countries, groups are so risk averse. And if you think about how we got to the world that we have today, we got here by people being willing to take risks in the past century, in the 20th mm-hmm. century and before that. And it does feel sometimes like at least here at the beginning of the 21st century that we've really stagnated and somehow we have to break out of that to move well, forward. And it, 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 I mean, when you think about it too, it's because we've become a, a, a people that just kind of s- sit around and navel gaze in, in, in a box that glows in our face and yeah. podcast about Star Trek. Exactly. And, you know, <laughs> instead of instead of going out there and, and experiencing the world right. and pushing ourselves. Yeah. And I mean, like the be- I mean, just Enterprise itself chronicles exploration from wooden ships all the way to enterprise and it you you right. see those guys who were the ones trying to break the mock barriers and then the sound uh and, mm-hmm. and then speed barriers and and then launch into space with space shuttles and all those kind of things like none of that happens without severe risk and we lost people along the way in that but yet their sacrifice helps bring us closer to our goals of of exploration and Enterprise, I think, is a beautiful continuation of helping us push those boundaries. And, and that's what the show is doing. And I think the thing that makes Enterprise special to me in rewatching this episode, too, and watching what Hoshi goes through is that it's a great reminder that Hoshi's a lot closer to where we are. Yeah. And so it makes it yeah. easier to even like relate to than watching Picard or Janeway or any of these other characters who just seem so far away and so perfect comparatively. I think that's the thing that really brings Enterprise alive to me. That's an interesting point, especially when I think about fan reception of the series of this episode originally versus now. And what do viewers want from Star Trek? What does Star Trek mean to you? Are you in it for the character relationships, which is one of the things that you and I love about Star Trek? Are you in it just for the cool spaceships and visiting planets and space battles, which is what some people see in it? Are you in it for the high super advanced technology? That really plays into the decisions made in establishing the series and the fan reception. So interesting point. Since we're talking about Hoshi, we have a few things on our outline here. One of them I have is naivety and adaptation. And it's about her and it's about what you mentioned earlier with Malcolm and Travis dealing with the weapon systems as well. We already talked a good bit here about what Hoshi's going through. So what do you think about the role of Flocks in this story 
because we have the humans. Most of the crew is comprised of humans. And for them, this is all new. It, the, probably the person for whom it's the least new is Travis. But as you said earlier, he grew up on a Warp, fi- a warp 2 cargo freighter and didn't see a whole lot. So even for him, this is pretty new. But we have Flux, who does have a lot of experience, it seems, with space exploration, interacting with other species. How did you feel about his role in this story of helping Hoshi along and just advancing that narrative of how humans will adapt to the situation and having a guiding hand? Yeah, I thought it was great because Phlox is actually the perfect mentor for Hoshi. He's the complete opposite. You know, he's somebody who is is never stopped exploring, never stopped wondering. Mm-hmm. And he has such a jovial attitude about it. But he's he's very caring. And I, I kind of love the way in which I think to her at the moment seemed to be quite an obnoxious thing to say to her, which is maybe you shouldn't be in space, basically. You right. know, that kind of goads her to start to think about, do I really want to be here? Do I really want to be doing this? And I, I think it gives her kind of the fire to be like, no, I do want to be here. I, I do want to be a part of this ship and and be exploring like this. So in all honesty, I think Flox was really the perfect character to be pointing that out to her and to be kind of helping her along the way. Because I mean, and in many ways, I think he's playing not in a bad way, but some psychological games with her to kind of help get her past the point that she's at and yeah. to make the decision, do I want this or yeah. do I not want this? I wouldn't call them games. I see him more as a counselor. When I say games, I don't mean that in a bad way, but I just mean in the way in which a counselor kind of does those mental gymnastics with you to kind of get you Mm -hmm. to a certain point that they're trying to get you to, but they're trying to get you to realize that. And so uh, that's what I mean kind of by, by game. I I don't mean that in any um, bad connotation. So can you imagine the NX-01 setting out on this mission with an entirely human crew? If we take Phlox and T'Pol out of the mix especially Phlox, because of how he is so effective at gently counseling the crew through the things that they experience, this being the first time we see it really here in fight or flight. What do you think would happen to the humans if they were out there in this story by themselves, an entirely human crew encountering this mystery for the first time? See, I think this is one of the geniuses of enterprise in that it's very subtle and that it helps us begin to see exactly why we need each other, right? And Phlox and T'Pol are already kind of a part of that in the sense that not only did humanity need each other to come together and, and, and get past their differences, right? But that humanity then, as we branched out into space, we needed others as well who had slightly different perspectives who could help us see new things and vice versa. And I think that's the beauty, again, with the character of Phlox is, is that he is somebody who's so amenable to the idea of 
understanding a new species and and also trying to see things from their point of view as well as sharing his point of view. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. And it is, again, another great message. Don't just get pigeonholed into your own ideology and or thought process. Expand your horizons. Allow somebody to say something that might challenge you, that might even seem offensive at the moment. I I think obviously Hoshi took what Flock said is slightly offensive, but that offense was meant to kind of trigger her to think a different way. Hoshi at that point really has to fish or cut bait. You know, she either needs to be there or she needs to go home. But being somebody who is so trepidatious is not going to help anyone, especially her and or Captain Archer. That's almost countercultural, though, today, too, to 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 be completely open to new ideas and new ways of thinking. And yet Flocks and to Paul are allowing Archer and his crew of of humans to begin to do that, to see different ways of, of, of looking at things. And I mean, Archer has to do that with T'Pol. He even has his great monologue when he's doing his his captain's log of trying to figure out, is, is she doing this on purpose? You know, is she just being uh, difficult on purpose? She kind of has a point at the same time. And so, yeah. like... I think that there's just this this episode is really well crafted in the sense that a lot of the thematic elements are all kind of weaving together throughout the different stories that are happening with all the characters to really make it come to full head by the end of the episode. Mm. It's interesting what you say about Archer and T'Pol, because as we were talking about Phlox counseling Hoshi and moving her in the direction that he knew that she needs to move in. I was going to ask you, do you think T'Pol is doing the same thing to Archer? She doesn't have the bedside manner of flocks. Right. But, (laughs) you know, I feel like she's in her own way trying to guide Archer towards the choices that he should make, or I don't know if should make is the the right thing, because... If it were up to her as a Vulcan, and if it were a Vulcan ship, I don't think they would have helped the Axanar. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, many of the things that she says to him just feel like she's she's telling him these things to try to turn on a light bulb in his head so he will think about the situation in a different way, Mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah, and I think the beauty of it is, is that Archer is having to come to grasp with, okay, we as humanity have come to a certain group of morals to which we hold to. And those morals, you know, it's been thousands of years in development and we hold to them now. How do we then implement those morals in the vastness of space? And that's a fantastic question, right? And I think the beauty of that too is that Archer believes that morality and those morals to which he holds to, to be at this point, very absolute. Like we, we would, we would hold to these no matter what. And I think for to Paul, she is definitely in a, in a camp that's probably much more uh, relativistic. And so 
I, I think that's the kind of the the battle between the two, which makes it really interesting. And for myself, I kind of fall more on Archer's side. And yet at the same time, trying to figure out how to implement that still is very, very interesting. And so I do think that she is trying to get Archer to think more about what he does and why he does it. But like you said, I I definitely don't think she has the bedside matter that Phlox no. has. And I don't necessarily think at this point that her motivations are quite as altruistic as that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I yeah. think that's the, also the beauty of this kind of human Vulcan conflict that is still going to happen is that we are going to watch both of those characters soften towards one another and their opposite opinions as the series moves forward. And that's going to be the thing to which also helps shape the relationship between humans and Vulcans as we move forward in Star Trek as well. And that's really cool is that, you know, we're getting that opportunity to see that happen, you know, not just through to Paul and Archer, but through to Paul and Trip and to Paul and Hoshi and all of the different characters as, as humanity begins to learn to interact with Vulcans on a much more personal level than they ever have throughout the last hundred years. Because we know from the series, Vulcans kind of keep to themselves even when they're on Earth. And so this is mm-hmm. the first time we've really, truly had them living and working together in such close proximity. I mean. NX-01 is a big ship, but it's not really that big. So <laughs> No, it's not that big. Yeah, it's interesting. Another thing I put on the outline, a thing that I had been thinking about here, is the human-Vulcan contrast. And a lot of fans were very upset at the time, and, and many continue to be upset to this day, about how the Vulcans are portrayed in Enterprise. But I still maintain that the way that Vulcans are presented in the 22nd century in these stories is just so important to this series and so important to showing how humans can go from where we are today to what we saw, especially in the Picard era in the 24th century. And I think it's done very effectively here. And the two sides are, there's so much animosity between the Vulcans and the humans particularly maybe a lot of animosity from the human side toward the Vulcans and a lot of sort of dismissive attitude on the part of the Vulcans towards the humans still after this hundred years has gone by. But with these two characters, we we have two people who do hold those views of their respective sides, but not as severely as the groups as a whole. And because they have to work together in this situation, they can gradually start coming together. And there's a lot of headbutting here between the two of them. But even here, you can see, like, they're at least willing to talk to each other. And I think T'Pol actually has an extremely large amount of patience with Archer. If you think about how she must be viewing the situation and how she might react and how she would react if she were human. But she really holds in that restraint. I think Jolene Blaylock does a wonderful uh, job of portraying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's especially evident in the scene in the ready room 
where she mm-hmm. has to be thinking like, what the frack is happening right now? Like, right. what is he doing? Yeah. But at the same time, I, I think that is the thing that I was kind of mentioning is like, for her, this is also the first time to truly observe humans in their natural habitat, basically. Like, what is it that they are like in close proximity to one another and to an, a Vulcan? And what I think is kind of beautiful in that is that Archer never hides who he is from her. He acts the way he would act in front of anybody else. And and Archer is just very natural. And I think that's the one of the beauties of having Scott Bakula in the role is that mm-hmm. he is completely himself. Like there's no airs that he's putting on. He He's just a man who truly feels like the, the first captain of a ship right. going at warp five yeah. and is just annoyed that there's this noise coming in his office and he doesn't have anything better to do than to try and figure out what it is. <laughs> right. And then juxtaposing that with Jolene's to Paul, who is very put together, who is very uh, reserved and would never do that type of thing in front of another person. And I think that's one of the things to which this begins that process of them kind of breaking down some barriers towards one another. And it's going to be a slow process, but they're going to get there. And so, yeah, I I agree with you. I think they both play their roles very well. And absolutely, it would take an extreme amount of patience to be able to just try and figure out these human beings and their weird uh, just oddities you know mm-hmm. yeah one other thing between the two of them before we move on to other things uh, and you brought it up earlier a little bit that archer says that humans have their own principles their own code of behavior uh, and he says that in response to Topol telling him that vulcans have a code of behavior and they would have never gotten themselves into the situation in the first place because they wouldn't have checked it out It felt a little bit like an early discussion of the Prime Directive in terms of what humans would develop and then the Federation would adopt as the Prime Directive in the future. And of course, later in the series, we get a very on-the-nose comment about the eventual Prime Directive from Archer. But here it felt a little bit like that, and I just thought it really highlighted how humans really are starting from scratch at this point. A lot of what we take for granted as the foundation of Star Trek, the foundation of how humanity thinks in the future, is just not here yet. Yeah, and I think that's the beauty of this, is that humanity shouldn't have thought about any of these things, right? You know, like, so much of, of doing something new is about having to figure out the right way to do it. And making mistakes along the way. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And 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 again, I, I think that really kind of speaks to what we were kind of talking about earlier about that risk averseness is that we don't want to be wrong or we don't want to do something wrong. And it's like, no, we have to be ready as humanity to realize we're going to be screwing things up all the time because we're not perfect beings. And that may be the most quintessential thing of what it means to be human is that we are not perfect. And therefore, mistakes or the way in which we learn and grow And yes, our goal is to try and do things as well as possible every time, but we have to be able to, to be able to look past that and to take what we learn from each circumstance and then apply that for doing it differently and or better as we move forward. And so I think it is fun 
Because, you know, one of the things about Star Trek, obviously, the prime directive is is controversial in the first place inside Star yeah. Trek. And so to be able to experience those early missions that would lead humanity to have those thoughts as to why we would have a prime directive is one of the legitimacies of doing a prequel in the first place, right? That's great. We want to have those discussions and to see the whys of of things. So again, to me, as I watch this episode, I'm coming away every time I watch it, more and more reasons to why this is a very good episode of Enterprise, but also to why I love the idea of doing the prequel in the first place. Mm. Let me ask you one more thing as we get ready to wrap up here, because we mentioned earlier that we would come back to it. And that's the whole thing about Malcolm trying to get the ship in a situation where it can defend itself a little bit better. And then you've got Travis saying, well, we're not going to need that. I mean, you don't think everyone out here is going to be hostile, do you? And then Archer is willing to consider, yeah, maybe we do need to test this stuff out and stop and give Malcolm time to do it. I guess two questions here would be, one, what does it say about the naivety of human thinking to think that they can go out there and they're going to find peaceful aliens everywhere? It brings me back to the whole idea in the scientific community for you know most of the past century that any aliens we encounter will be so much more advanced than we are that they will be peaceful and therefore we don't need to fear conflict with them. It takes me back to that. And then the other question would be just, what did you think about the presentation of missiles here as opposed to phasers, photon torpedoes, the stuff we're accustomed to? You know, Did they water it down too much or did it really capture that feeling of realism for you in this, at this point on the timeline? I don't see it necessarily as naive. I just definitely see it as a thing to which humanity has to learn as to what the universe is going to be like. I think the idea that when we look at our own world, do you really think that just because somebody became advanced enough to have warp flight means that they couldn't be aggressive and or like, I I think that idea is stupid. I think that idea is the ultimate naivety that just because something is sufficiently advanced technologically that they would not be, that would somehow neuter aggression from them. You know, like, I, right, I think that's, right. uh, I think. Because well, the real all, world shows that that's not what happens when technology advances. At yeah. 100%. So I, I think if we're just looking at our own world as, as an idea, it shows that, um, that that's not the case. But I love the fact that Starfleet hasn't, it's not even Starfleet, it's just Earth hasn't come up with space weapons that are sufficient to the job yet because they don't know what's going to be out there. They don't know what everybody else's technology is going to be like. And the Vulcan sure as heck aren't going to be helping them figure that out either, at, at least at right now. And so to see them have to figure these things out is, I think, really good. And I think that's one of the things that to have to do it in the firefight, I think is really great. And I think that moment of the technology having to be figured out on the fly 
as well as mirroring that with Hoshi having to figure out how to talk to these aliens on the fly is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it's a real culmination of good storytelling so that all of your thematic elements are really working together and really syncing. And so I love it. You know, I absolutely love uh, the way in which they handled that. And I'm glad that they didn't give us phasers and photon torpedoes right away. The fact that we have to really earn those in the show is fantastic. And it's the same way in which I think when we look at our world as we were talking about, the reality of things is that we have to earn those things with our technology. And it's it's not really until somebody realizes there's a problem that technology then can step up, hopefully, and we can find an answer to that. And that's that's where, you know, enterprise is, is they have to find the answer. So I, I really like it. Great. Any final thoughts? I was just struck, uh, again, by rewatching the episode, Chris, and I don't know about you. I'd be interested to hear if you were, but that this is a really strong episode for what the series is setting out to do. Like that, this is a great way to follow up the first episode. And I like that it's slower. I like that it feels very deliberate in the fact that we're not trying to go at warp speed to get Mm -hmm. to, you know, I just, I I really like it. Yeah. It reminds me what you and I talked about recently on an episode of The Orb, our Deep Space Nine show, when we talked about quiet episodes and we contrasted a little bit with Shuttlepod 1 here from Enterprise. And this isn't quiet to that extent, but it is, you know, compared with modern Star Trek, what we're seeing on TV today, it's a very slowly paced and and quiet episode. And I'm glad they took the time to do that right after the pilot. And I think it really establishes the foundation of the the tone of the series really well. And I think it's exactly what they said that they wanted to do as they were talking in that commentary, which is that they wanted to be character focused. And this is an episode that's very character focused on kind of giving you an understanding of who each of these characters are. And each one kind of gets a moment, you know, which is hard to do in an ensemble this big. So very impressed that that the second episode of the series is intentionally focused on, okay, we want to tell a story here, but how do we tell that story in a way that builds characters first and everything else second. So, yeah, phenomenal start, honestly. Yeah, I mean, we get more character growth for some of the characters in this one episode than we've gotten for some characters so far in some of the modern Star Trek series. So, Or even, I mean, heck, you might know more about the characters here than you knew in all of maybe TNG or Voyager, really. That's true, you know, too. So, I mean, Especially that's, that's, TNG. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, I think... You know, that's great to see. So what will be fun about going forward is how do how do they continue that? Do they really continue on that mission for themselves? You know, that do they continue yeah. to live up to the promise that they've given us in the, these first couple episodes? So, Well, I think this is, you said this last time, but this is another example of how they took a cue from Deep Space Nine and building on what made DS9 such a great show, which is that yeah. character focus. Yeah. Well, I mean, they take a cue from everything else. So, you know, (laughs) now they're putting him back in Picard. So (laughs) (laughs) plucking the cue. All right. So what rating would you give this episode? Ah, That's a good question. Um, You know, I I do think to me, I would 
probably give this a good four out of five sluggos. I mean, you know, it's, it really, uh, there's, I don't find anything wrong with the episode. The, the five star episodes, I, I'd, I'd be pretty stingy with a five star for, for any Star Trek episode. Honestly, it has to be the, the best, but this is a very solid, I mean, this is way above average for me, even at the beginning of Enterprise here. I think they're right on target with where they're trying to go. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with it. Excellent. Well, I'm going to give this episode eight bio pumps. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, it was fun talking about fight or flight. And Matthew, I'm looking forward to the next episode where we're going to discuss Strange New World, which of course was the perfect title for a Star Trek episode, which we surprisingly hadn't had before. So I hope everyone will join us next time for that. We'd love to hear your thoughts on fight or flight. If you'd like to share those with us, there are many ways that you can do it. A great way to join in the conversation with us and fellow listeners is to join the Babel Conference on Facebook. That is our private listeners group. If you're already a member, just look for the post for this episode when it goes up. And if you're not, just search Facebook for Babel, B-A-B-E-L, and it should come up. If not, just type the whole thing, the Babel Conference. It is a closed group, so you do need to answer the questions so that we can let you in. But that's a great place to share your thoughts. You can also find the network on Twitter. Our username is TrekFM. And you can send email if you'd like to Matthew and me using the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. And that'll come to us by the usual methods. Now, Matthew, if people want to find out what you have going on, you know, when you're not uh, sitting around chatting with a slug, where should they go? Well, you know, when I'm not on the NX01, I'm in the 602 Club, and we're talking about all things geeky uh, outside of Star Trek here on the network, and, you know, we've got some great things in that feed as well. We've got Snyder Cuts. We've also got Assembling Avengers coming as well, so we're really trying to just give you some great stuff that is uh, building up a, a whole other side of the network here, so hope you'll enjoy those. Check those out. Uh, of course, 602 Club's on Twitter, at the 602 Club. And here, also doing literary tracks. So, uh, Chris, you're there sometimes with me. Bruce is there sometimes. We talk about the books, the comics of Star Trek. You know, we've got the big series coming up. Coda that's coming out as they wrap up the lit verse. So, look for all of that. Um, and then you can find me over in the Nerd Party Network doing a couple of shows. One is called Owlpost. I did that with Drea Kaufman. We did the entire Harry Potter series, one chapter at a time. And then Aggressive Negotiations with my good friend John Mills as we talk about Star Wars every week. And I'm on social media, so if you want to find me, you can find me there under the name Matt Rushing 2 uh, Now, Chris, you know, when you're not hanging out in the mess hall with flocks eating some delicious potatoes, where can they find you? Well... When Archer is away on missions, when he's busy running the ship, I love dogs, so I like to slip into his quarters and feed Porthos extra cheese. It's one of my little hobbies. And when I'm not doing that, you can find me podcasting here on the network on The Ready Room, which is our longest running show, which I do with Larry Nemechek. And also, of course, Matthew, you and I do in The Orb, talking about DS9 and literary treks, which you mentioned. And Interphase is a Star Trek Universe podcast, which I started a while back, and I'm working on picking up some pace on that with some new ideas that we have rolling. And then I spend the rest of my time putting together magazines. But 
If you'd like to check out those podcasts, I'd love for you to share your thoughts on what we discussed there. And if you'd like to interact with me in social media, the best place to do that is Twitter. That's where I'm the most active. And my username there is C Brian Jones, letter C, and Brian with a Y. You can also find me in the Babel Conference, which I mentioned earlier. And that's my username, C Brian Jones, pretty much everywhere in social media, but definitely Twitter is the place where I'm most active. If you'd like to help us keep these shows going across the entire network, we could really use your help at patreon.com. So if you would like to become a supporter of the network, please visit patreon.com slash trekfm to find out how. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. And you can find out there how to contribute. We have some big changes coming up down the road that we have planned, which will be wonderful for our patrons, I think. And we really appreciate everyone who is supporting us right now. So thank you to all of our associate producers across the network and all of our patrons who help us keep everything going. Well, Matthew, I think now that we've wrapped up our assistance of the Axinar, we're going to drop off Sluggo and then set course for the next discussion of Enterprise's 20th anniversary. So I'm looking forward to that. Chris, let's go. 